If you are a singer, songwriter, artist, producer, content creator, engineer, and you want to take your career to the next level, don't buy into a lot of this crap that I'm seeing on Facebook about how to do this and how to do this and get rich quick. And it's a $745 course. You don't need to do all of that. What I've done at the Artist Development Academy is get my friends, you know, hit songwriters, multi-platinum selling producers, uh, label executives, publishing company executives, all in this one place as instructors to help you step by step and give you the information, access and guidance you need to help take your career to the next level. We're talking about real strategies in the form of online monthly courses that our all access members get every single month. When you join and become an all-access member, you immediately get uh, access to our entire library of online courses, plus you get a brand new online course every single month. You also get access to our members-only forum, where you can post your work for feedback. You can uh, post questions to me or any of the other industry insiders and the professionals. If you want to post a song you're working on, get our feedback, you can do that. Lots of stuff for you there to help grow your career. Plus, we do monthly live stream events where you can connect with us one-on-one in real time to ask your questions that are specific to your career. We are here to help you grow at an affordable price, okay? Go check it out today, artistdevelopmentacademy.com. And just because you are listening to this podcast, when you go to checkout and you choose either your monthly or annual subscription, uh, your membership, Enter code Steve, and I'm personally giving you 30% off of your monthly or annual membership. Go check it out. Now, if you think Netflix is worth it and Hulu's worth it, this will grow your career, so you really need to check it out. Go to artistdevelopmentacademy.com, enter code Steve at checkout, and get 30% off. Today's guest has... Uh, let's see what three platinum albums, 10 gold albums, five gold singles. He's acted in over 60 films, including, uh, uh, let's see, Hudson Hawk, Staying Alive, Fred Claus, Tombstone. He's written and recorded compositions for nine films, including Rocky One, Rocky Two, Rocky Three, Rambo Two, Paradise Alley, and Over the Top, as well as The Expendables Two. By now, you probably already know. Well, you probably know by the title exactly who I'm talking about. But he also received Grammy and Golden Globe nominations for the original song he wrote for the Saturday Night Fever sequel, Staying Alive. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Stallone is my guest. Frank, welcome into the show. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Steve, for contacting me to have me on your wonderful show. Well, I know... The funny thing is, in researching for this, I was looking. It's, you know, artist, songwriter, musician, actor, entrepreneur. Which one of these things do does Frank Stallone consider himself to be? I would say the musician, for sure. I mean, that was the first thing I did from a from a from a child and and I'm still doing it now. I hate to say it. I'll be 70 years old on Thursday. So I've been doing it uh, professionally for 55 years. And uh, with all the ups and downs, the stuff like that, I I wouldn't have it any other way. Let me ask you, and I want to get into a lot of it with you, but but where do you see, because the music business as it stands today, the music music that's being made today, the music that's being force-fed on the public today, what what do you think where we are in the business right now 
versus the the music that you started making that you still continue to make. What what's the downside of it today for you when you look around on the on the musical landscape? Well, the musicality is the downside. I mean, I mean, once in a while you get a breath of fresh air like the Kings of Leon that are like a real band. I mean, there's no sampling. I mean, they're like you know Tom Petty. They're a real band or Post Malone. I mean, he's actually he's eccentric, but he's actually pretty good. Oh, I, I don't I, consider him hey, at all. I can. I, I flew more. the entire family up to go see Post Malone in Madison Square Garden last September. And then we went again when he came here in Nashville. I couldn't, I could not agree with you more. I think he's a genius. I asked a friend of his that's very good. I go, why does he live in Utah? He goes, because he loves shooting 50 caliber rifles. (laughs) He's a gun nut. Even though he drives around these gaudy Rolls Royce, he goes, he just hangs around. He loves to shoot. And he's like a real, uh, you know, second amendment type guy. He's a real cool guy. So, uh, but the business has changed. Um, the expectation is different. I mean, when I came out, not as someone sound like an old arrow in my day, but in my day and when my time came, I was up against Michael Jackson, the police, Lionel Richie. I mean, there there was a moment. I don't even know if I have it somewhere. There was a moment on one of the charts when I was above all those guys, not for long. <laughs> for a minute is like in the hot that's one. That's all market. that matters but is that minute. I was there. And, uh, but again, all these guys, singer, songwriters, uh, not so much sampling. I mean, I, I, so what happened to me is, uh, after like almost 20 years in the trenches, really nothing happening when staying alive came out for me, that was my entree into the big time before I was on RCA failed record this that that but that was like going from it was almost a rocky store going from a broke and within a year being nominated for grammy and a golden globe and platinum records and all that stuff like that so that was my rocky story but the thing was so we worked on my solo album my first solo album and it didn't go over as well as we thought it would. I mean, the record company was jazzed on it. They actually intercut five songs on the B side of the 45 because they thought there were so many hits on the record. So that didn't go well. So uh, I lost my record deal. Unfortunately, my people didn't get me a three record deal like everyone else got. <laughs> and so I lost my deal. And then overnight, the, 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 business changed it changed to well it was the early stages of i guess what you would call rap hip-hop and no i was writing with lamont dozier harry nilson i was writing with some really good writers i didn't know how to the sampling and the you know that, that's just not my bag i don't write like that you know and nor do i want to and and, and the people like that music God bless them, you know, but it's not for me. So I decided to make a big band album because I always, my, everyone always said, man, you should do a big band album. You can really do that stuff really well. So I financed my own record. I started my own record label and I paid, and it was not cheap. I did this album with Sammy Nesco called In Love in Vain. Sammy had been nominated for many, many Grammys. He was Count Basie's conductor and arranger. I mean, he'd been around forever and he's still around. He's like 95 years old. He's really well respected. He told me that he thought it was the best album he ever made because I let him do whatever orchestrations he wanted to do. And Tony Bennett actually wrote the liner notes to that album. So I'm saying, okay, 
this album comes out. Dean Martin's alive. Frank Sinatra's alive. Tony. Be- so the guys are alive. I mean, it's not like, okay, Frank came in when they're all dead. So this is, <laughs> again, this is my competition. Jack Jones, you name them, they're there. So the album comes out, and I must admit to myself, I think the album is stupendous. It's called In Love and Vain. It's on uh, cdbaby.com, you know, on my label. And I figured, well, I can't compete with the kids, the young guys doing the hip hop and sampling. And, you know, just it's not like young MC. That's just not what I do. But I can compete in the adult contemporary traditional big band stuff because there was no one my age. This is before Harry Connick. This is before Michael Buble. The only one that did an album that was Linda Ronset, which was a great record, and Harry Nilsson was great. But that was it. So I figured I'm in. It's the new. Open. Yeah, the lane is open. It's, it's new material. It's new this. It's new that. Again, uh, RCA Records goes, wow, we, we really like this thing. I said, oh, my God, I'm so ecstatic. They call me up and goes, I swear to God, like, a day before I signed the deal, nah, I don't think it's going to happen. We just had a regime change. I go, oh, Christ, here we go. So the album really never got to see the light of day. And it's a shame because it really is, a, 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 I think it's a great album because the arrangements, a lot of people, I don't do Sinatra songs per se. I do standards. This is before Rod Stewart. I do standards. But they're my own arrangements. Right. I mean, they're well, same has to go as myself. And uh, and they're really, it's different, you know. And Michael Buble, guess when Mike, when Sammy did stuff with Michael Buble, and Stephen, and uh, Sammy says, Do you know what was on David Foster's desk? I go, What? He goes, Your CD, the one that we did. So, because Sammy was doing stuff with Michael Buble, and Michael's a great guy, and I like Michael a lot, and I think he's really good. He's really a talented guy. And so that, so that set me back. I mean, that really set me back uh, tremendous because I didn't really have the team to say, okay, we'll get this on Concord records. We'll get this here. We'll get this there. And just, I lost the momentum. So I became the working guy, you know, out there working and doing all that crazy stuff. And, uh, and that's how it goes. So, and I've recorded like 12 albums, different stuff, you know, don't mind my books. I got thousands and thousands of books. I don't even know what I'm going to do anymore. I mean, it's like. Well, evidently you're going to read. <laughs> I've read every one of these books behind me and it goes up to the ceiling. To tell you the truth. Oh, wow. And I've read all those books and there's another bookshelf over there. So it's, uh, but something I like, you know, but now I'm getting into Kindle because I can't travel with four or five hardbacks anymore. That's more than my amp. You know, right. okay. so absolutely. Uh, and the business has changed in that sense too. I remember before we used to have amble cases, amps on the road, stuff. That's all gone. Everything is backline now, and and uh, now you're fighting with people to carry your eighty thousand dollar Les Paul on the plane, <laughs> and then someone pushes their luggage into it. You want to kill them? You know. I said, "Excuse me, this guitar is worth more than like your life." Okay, so. <laughs> And so that whole thing has changed a lot. And the business has changed. It's, uh, I mean, all these shows, American Idol, American this, that, that, other than the few people on those shows, most of them don't have a clue because they, like Daughtry and the guy that's in Queen, 
but they worked. They were like in a band. They, they yeah. knew how to perform. These other guys had never reformed. The only one that really did, I mean, Carrie Underwood, she was kind of a novice, but she took to it and she did a great job. And so did the, the other gal, the first girl. Uh, and Clarkson, uh, yeah. Singer. But most of them, because they don't have a show. You know, every week it takes a week. They've got a voice coach. They got in ears. They got a thing that for one song. And I remember at that age, I was doing 160 minutes of music a night, six nights a week in bars. So you learn your craft. Mm. But there's uh, there's a lot to performing live. And I get a lot of kudos for my live show because I've been doing it for so long. I just it's natural. I know how to gauge you know, when to do this. There's some audiences that want to hear talk and batter. Some don't. They just want to hear music. And I did that when I, I used to open for Don Rickles all the time. Oh, wow. And that was kind of a for me, I mean, I went from like rock and roll to Don Rickles, but Don was great. And who am I to turn Don Rickles out? It was great. But the thing is, what you learn from those old timers, man, I don't care if they're half dead, they're going to do the show. And I was almost like that. I was, I very rarely get sick, but this one time I was so sick that my conductor, I had to lay in the back of a station wagon and go from my house out to the Indian casino where I was playing with Don Rickles. And I mean, well, I'm talking like sick and I'm never sick. And usually have people backstage were drinking, having fun. I was like this. I was like weekend at Burn. I was like Joe Biden, basically. <laughs> weekend at Burn. So, I mean, that's why I was like, and all of a sudden they go, Frank, five minutes. I was on stage. I, it's really weird. I did one of the best shows I ever did. And then I went back and just out because I knew because Don used to watch my show. They don't care. The show goes on. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I had the same manager for, for a minute that Frank Sinatra had, Elliot Weissman. Good guy. Yeah, he was Frank's manager. And I remember I was in New York. I was going to be playing at a place called Michael's Pub. And Frank was celebrating his 75th birthday at the Meadowlands. So there was like seventy-five to 80,000 tickets sold out, Frank. Frank has like 103 temperature. I mean, he's gone. Elliot's there. What are we going to do? And Frank goes, I'm going on. The doctor goes, you could die. He goes, well, good. I'll die on stage, but I'm going on. There's no way I am not going to do that show. And he came on and it, it was iffy the first few songs. And man, that memory kicked in and he just kicked royal ass. That's the difference between a pro and a crybaby. I remember back in 2003 when Entourage first debuted on HBO. It very quickly became one of my favorite shows at the time, and even almost 20 years later is still one of my favorite shows that has ever aired, that has ever been captured on film. I am honored today to have Entourage's creator, writer, and director joining me today on the Steve Freeman Podcast. Doug Allen is here. Thank you so much for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Like, I, I, I have to it. say, I, 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 and I don't remember, maybe because I was following Action Park Media, who you're adorning the hat of today, the podcast network that yeah. Kevin Conley yep. has started. And I yep. saw Victory the Podcast going up, and I immediately, I was like, All right, I'm such a huge Entourage fan. I'm going to listen no matter what. And I was instantly hooked. And it, it made Thank me literally you. go back 
and start watching Entourage from se- from from season one, episode one, the pilot, all the way through to last night. I finished season eight again and watched the movie, and it, it is just. It was so cool because I noticed things the second time around that I didn't notice the first. And I want to get into all of that with you. Uh, but first, man, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate you being here. And I, I want to know how you got started in the business, man. I got started. I graduated Tulane in New Orleans and uh, honestly got rejected from every law school. That was my plan. I had nothing to do with the movie business. I, I dreamt of it. But I didn't know anybody in it and uh, had no idea. So uh, a couple of people thought I was mildly amusing, said I should do stand-up comedy. And uh, I told my parents, I'm I'm moving out to L.A. and I'm going to start doing stand-up comedy, which uh, that did not go over very well with them after they spent all this hard-earned money on college. And uh, we went from there and uh, had some lucky breaks. I made some short films. I went to the American Film Institute for a year. And... uh, you know, that was it. So, um, you know, this, this business requires a few things. Obviously you need some talent, but you need a lot of persistence and a lot of luck. And I was fortunate to have at least two of those things. So, well, Hey, dude, have Sometimes all you need is one of those things. That's uh, true. That is true. Well, how did, how did the whole entourage thing come about? I mean, I know a little bit about this cause I've listened to every episode of the podcast. So I know, but for those that don't, uh, how how did the show come about? So I, uh, again, Tulane Connection, New Orleans. Um, my friend, my manager at the time was also Mark's manager. I knew Mark for years before. Um, and I, you know, I made two movies and sold a bunch of scripts. And they came to me one day and said, you know, Mark follows his friends around with a the camera. They're a funny group. We think there's a show here. Um, they really hadn't done a TV show. I think they, they might've done one before that, uh, a network sitcom or something, but, um, and then, uh, kind of, you know, left it up to figure it out. So there wasn't quite a fully fleshed idea, but we knew it was okay. It's, it's, uh, kind of a street kid like Mark and, um, let's build it around that and his friends making it in Hollywood. So, uh, you know, I asked Mark, I said, uh, I want to use what I can of you, but obviously if I'm going to write this, I need to use my own experiences. And that's why we switched them to New Yorkers from Boston. And mm. I kind of did a hodgepodge of his friends and my friends, and then started using a lot of my life experiences. And um, Mark was obviously very supportive of it. And that, that's where it went. Yeah. It's like I watching it back through. Cause I remember, I think I was 25 or 26 when the show aired and somewhere around there. And I remember I remember watching that first pilot episode and just being captivated because I don't know that there had ever been another show that kind of really took you behind the scenes of Hollywood and and showed the real day in and day out and the struggles of people that are trying to make it, but also what goes on at the upper echelons of the business, but with the agents and with the managers and how much reality did you try when you were writing these characters and how much of that reality was it important to you to show people on the other side? Yeah. I mean, it was essential to me and you know, it's weird because because of the podcast, I'm looking back at the show, which I haven't watched in years. Um, and everything that I did was we're going to be real before we're funny. 
And mm. there were a lot of times, and it's it's. I like that you say you're getting things on the second time, because I used to write things that people would go, "That's so inside, nobody's gonna know what you're talking about." I said, "Well, they'll figure it out because this is how they talk, this is how it is, and 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 they'll get it or they won't." Um, so that was really important. The most unrealistic thing, probably about the show, is you know. Groups of guys don't hang out like this as they get older and older and older and right. don't care about each other quite as much. Most of the real entourages have a much more either business aspect to them or kind of a, you know, masochistic control aspect of it. So sure. I kind of took how my group of friends grew up, which was which was different than Mark's actual crew. Um, I made them like childhood friends and basically relatives and, and a family. Um, so that was one of the challenges also like, okay, there it's eight years of these guys like hanging out all the time. And even, which I have a daily text with my 15, 16 best friends from high school, elementary school, even, which is pretty crazy. Mm. But if we were all in the same city, we would never hang out every day like this at, at our ages. So but the Hollywood aspect of it was very important to make it as realistic as it could be. And um, I think the combination of the two is what worked because there were some Hollywood shows before action and, and such, which was um, which was a funny show, but really didn't focus on what what was the most interesting thing to me was the friendships and the loyalty and the coming up with a group of guys that knew you before it all happened. So, yeah, because there's not a lot of loyalty in our business. I, I'm more on the music side of it, but there's no loyalty here. I've always said that, that the music business is very much a, we business. I mean, a me business, it's not a, we business. And you know, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, and this is one of the things I got going back and, and watching again for the second time, completely through basically in one setting. I think I finished all eight seasons in the movie in like a week and a half. So I was really binging this shit you know, getting in yeah. there. One of the things I noticed was, and then listening to the podcast helped tremendously, but did you start to notice that the dynamic you were writing on the page for these four guys and, you know, extended five for, for um, Jeremy Piven and, and everybody else, did that dynamic start to leave the page and start to create a dynamic between you and the individual actors? Because that's what I started noticing after listening to the podcast and going back and watching all the episodes again, Marrying those two things together, it almost seemed like you guys became a real life entourage outside of the show. Well, I mean, I think, you know, Jeremy's kind of separate because, you know, he was the agent and and he was the Chicago guy. But I wanted to cast people who were like my best friends growing up. And I did. Um, So really, from minute one, the. The four of them and adding me in as kind of older and and the boss. Um, But we really did gel from minute one. So um, and even when we started the podcast again, which I, you know, I I speak to Kevin, Jerry and and Kevin all the time anyway. But we don't we don't hang out that much. We've got our separate lives and doing things. But it is exactly like high school. When we get back together, it's like no time has passed. We've got so many stories we want to tell. And we we kind of all view the world from that kind of working class New York thing that we we had. So um, there were a lot of elements of the guys that somehow I had kind of written in the pilot and then just used whatever they brought to it as we went along. But they were 
And I say this all the time. Those four guys were the perfect guys. There was no other options. It wasn't like, oh, you know, it could have been this guy. Like, I never think about the show and go, can you imagine we got this guy? I think we got the perfect guys. And and it still works. And you can hear on the podcast, because I think what a lot of people say about the podcast is it feels like the show, which is. Is, is, is a cool compliment. It's also depressing because I killed myself to make those <laughs> scripts on the show. And the podcast is like a joy. It's like we, we walk in, we talk, and we have a good time. But that really was what I wanted from the show to get go. As much as the Hollywood stuff interests me, that wasn't the key. It was the, the way I really sold it, which was, you know, pre um, um, The Hangover, mm. you know, there was no, there was in 2003, there was nothing on TV where guys, talked like guys that I knew. Now I know that's a bad thing in 2020. Now they're animals and you're not allowed to talk like they talk, but they were good guys. They just happened to have mouths, you know, that, that whatever. I don't, I don't, the locker room talk has kind of been ruined from what, what the president said, but locker room talk of guys who aren't predatory and are good guys, but actually still, you know, like to have fun. So that was the key to it for me. Well, that was one of the things I did want to ask you going back after watching the entire thing again. I, I, in my mind, I was like, this show could never be made now the way that yeah. it was made then. And, yeah. and, 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 a little, and I'd like to get a little bit of your insight on this because I, I don't think it's because it's socially unacceptable or cancel culture or any of that. But it seems to me that a lot of people, just normal, everyday people have a very difficult time now telling the difference between a caricature, somebody playing a role on TV and the actual person themselves. And I think that would cause a show like this, no matter how great it is, you just can't even hardly be real on film anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. And actually today on, on our podcast, Larry Charles, who, if you don't know who he is, is is one of the greats who, 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 Seinfeld, Kirby Enthusiasm, Man About You. He directed Borat. He directed The Dictator. He directed uh, Bob Dylan uh, in uh, Mast and Anonymous. And uh, he, we discussed all of this. And art is a time and a place. And Entourage was one of the most critically acclaimed shows on TV when it came out. New York Times said it was the best show on TV. We were nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes every year. But now a certain sect of people look back and go, oh, now you say, could it be written today? Of course it would be written today. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't write the same way, not because Mm. I was worried about the culture, but because the culture has shifted. But in 2003, that was very, very realistic to what the culture was. And, And separate and apart thought is, and again, I don't find it like I was never writing, trying to offend anybody anyway, but they're characters. And when you watch Goodfellas, if Joe Pesci makes a racial slur, you don't think Joe Pesci is a racist. Right. You think they're examining a certain group of people and and how they were. And that that's the same thing to me. But, uh, you know, listen, I'm 52 now. I have two kids and the world has changed. And it's a you know, some of it is horrible. Some of the over, you know, um, doing that to people, but comedians, writers, and artists, I wouldn't say they adjust, but they, they reflect the culture and the time that it's at. And, you know, right now it's like, you know, Dave Chappelle's one of the few guys who's, who's able to voice, you know, 
the concerns that everybody has in a way that doesn't offend, it doesn't offend people Mm -hmm. because he's so good and he's so brilliant at it. But um, you know, you can look back at stuff 20 years ago, stuff that I 30 years ago was obsessed with Eddie Murphy, Richard Pryor, um, you know, stuff I grew up on and now go, Oh my God, this is, this is fun. But the truth is, is that was a reflection of the time and you, you adjust for it. And some things last forever, which of course I hope entourage does, but uh, I understand how the times have shifted. And if it was starting today, it would definitely be written differently. Not because, you know, I was forced to, but because my, my mind and the culture is different. But, you know, one of the things about entourage is the time things, people always said how prescient we were, how Mm. on ahead of the curve we were and we were, and that's not to, to brag. That's not to do anything, but you need to watch it and remember it was 2003 to 2011, 12, and the world's a different place. So. Well, it's like watching it back. I was, and I was leaving in my head. My wife was watching some of it with me. And, and cause I remember we, that was, that was appointment viewing for us on Sunday night. And, you know, it was back before we had kids and we were watching some last night. It's like, man, the, the lines that would come and it's like, couldn't say that today. And it, not that it's not funny or, or not that I even, I, of course you would have to go really way out there to offend me, but as a as a creative as a writer do you find that creatively suppressive the way that the things I, are today i i think there's certain things going on that are but when reflecting on entourage i, I don't at all because the truth is is today in the work environment you would never speak that way but mm. 15 years ago, people did. So you wouldn't write it because it would be like we talked about earlier. It would be unrealistic to have someone talk the way they did. Again, my feeling is since it was a, you know, comedy drama a little bit, but a comedy, you know, they were characters. And even like, you know, Ari's abuse of Lloyd, you knew at the end of the day, he loved the guy Mm. and you knew he was a big mouth, but he would always show up for him. That being said, if it was 2020 and he spoke that way in the office, I mean, he'd be on the cover of the Hollywood reporter the next day, his career would be over and that would be it. So it's, it's hard for me to even, you know, it's not something I would ever even waste my energy defending because Mm. like I said, it spoke to the time it was successful and it worked, but we're in a, we're in a place where we've evolved, which, you know, that's great because nobody should speak like that in a work environment, you know, but it was, again, Ari was not my reflection of what life should be like. He was based on a lot of people in Hollywood that a lot of people recognized. So in some level, you can dismiss Entourage as a very silly show or whatever the fuck you want. But again, at the time, you can read articles from major critics that were like, this is really realistic. This is how it is. And, and a lot of the Hollywood agents, which was always a compliment to me, were like, you fucking nailed this. This is like our lives. So it's not, and I don't even like to say the word artist because I don't consider myself an artist. I really don't. It's, it's like, I'm, I'm not David Simon. I'm not David Chase. I'm not Larry David. I wish I was, but what I did was, was the best of my ability to reflect the world as I saw it at the time. And, and really people thought we did. So to revise that now is 
the only thing that bothers me. It's just stupid, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that'll just go, oh, this was some woman hating show. It wasn't like I, I was very specific in that show to make sure these guys, they talked like idiots, but really, especially like Turtle and Drama, who had most of the lines, they didn't get girls on the show. So they right. were just talking. They were just impressing their boys. And that's young men. And, you know, listen, if if young men today, which I don't hang out around with a lot of uh, 18 to 25 year old men, if they've learned how to talk gentler and kinder, that's great. That should be what it is. But I obviously have. Um, but again, it's more about no one would talk like that in an office today and get away with it. So I wouldn't write it like that. Not because I thought I offended someone with a, with a line. So, well, and I'll tell you, it was very evident and I'm sure you've noticed it, but I noticed it big time and it's really fresh on my mind. You can notice that from season one, episode one through the movie, you even addressed part of this in the show through seasons, uh, later part of season six into season, into season seven, you can even look at the language that was written that you wrote for the film and see how yeah. in 2015, well, at that time, 2000, probably 13, 14, you were writing the film yeah. came out in 2015, even, even Jeremy Piven and, and, and the Ari character was toned down for that yeah. time because so much had progressed since 2003 in, in the culture. Yeah, it definitely was. But I'll tell you, because it is interesting, because the culture sometimes moves when you don't even see it. And the movie, which I'm glad you pointed out, was written almost two years before it came out. And the Me Too movement really started happening about six months to 18 months after the movie, like the real official, you know, it's out there. But the truth is, it was there. And I... Like I said, the eight years of the show, we were ahead of the curve. The movie might have been a little behind because the backlash was kind of shocking to me. I really didn't understand it because there there's nothing worse. And like you say, maybe less in the movie than there was in the show. And again, the show wasn't considered like a raunchy, disgusting show. It was considered an intelligent, smart, funny show at the time. So the movie, you know, I remember even, you know, Emily Ratajkowski on the movie saying there were a couple of things that offended her. And I was like, oh, okay." And I I, kind of toned them down. But what I didn't realize is this shift was happening. And if you look at the last five years, the shift has been much bigger than even the previous 25 years. And totally there are movies now that I have watched literally 250 times in my life that when I watch them today and I had watched them five years ago, even they make me go, Whoa, like people are going to be offended by this. And there's no way as a thoughtful, decent human being, not that you're offended by it, but not that it doesn't make you pause for a minute. Simple movies, like the greatest comedies of all time, airplane. uh, I could name a hundred of them. The jerk you go, wow. Um, this is going to be a thing. So there has been a real shift um, more than I think in any previous time before. And it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because to take away some of the great comedies of all time, because they say something that, you know, may offend you now would be tragic, but it's also important to look at what it is and, and, 
people to discuss the culture and today, you know, and I have a 16 year old daughter. So even, you know, as I've grown in my own self, like I said earlier, I would never write a lot of that stuff Mm. um, just because it, it wouldn't happen. But I think that it's important for artists or just even low level comics, whatever, to stay true to, to who they are and what they see, because those are the people. And again, I'm older now, so, but it's the young people who are usually ahead of the curve. And Lenny Bruce, when he was doing stand up and cursing, people were like, what, what the hell is this? Andrew Dice Clay, but you push the envelope and you end up creating movements and stuff. And hopefully you know, each generation gets a little better, a little more thoughtful, but you still are able to appreciate what was in the past, you know? Um, you have heard his songs on the radio. He has had cuts with everyone from acts like Greg Allman, Montgomery Gentry, the Oak Ridge Boys, rock bands like Molly Hatchet, and even Kevin Costner. We're going to get into talking about that, Kevin Costner in the Modern West, and uh, songs he has written for television, film, including the hit show Yellowstone. We're going to talk about that, and it's my pleasure to bring in my friend, Jack Williams. Jack, it is so awesome to have you here, man. Thanks for uh, taking the time. I'm honored that you would have me here. This is great, man. Thanks. Oh, man, it is my pleasure. And hey, you know what? We have to add artist uh, now to that moniker because you've released uh, the new project, which I do want to talk with you about. Those of you that want to find it, it is absolutely amazing. Don't search Jack Williams. Search H. Jack Williams. And the, the project's called Already Dead. It came out May 1st. Some great music on there, and I want to get to that. Um, but Jack, tell me Tell me about your journey as a songwriter, where you came from, how you got to town, and a little bit about your journey as a songwriter moving to Nashville. I don't know if we got enough time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got all the time in the world, man. Well, to make a long story short, um, I started out as a roadie for a cover band in, in Cleveland called Law back in 1972. Um and um, they were they were the biggest cover band on the East Coast. They had two. Uh, they were a split dimensional. They had a, a white a white sing. Uh, I mean a black singer and a black bass player and a white guitar player and a white drummer. And they um, they founded the Agora Ballroom and the Agora Ballroom Circuit. And I went on as their roadie. Just they didn't have. I went to see them one night and they didn't have any roadie. And I asked them if I could do it. And they said yeah. And then I started writing songs. Uh, I wanted to write, uh, so I started writing poems and stuff like that and ended up writing a song with their lead singer. And that was it. End of story for them. And um, then I decided I was going to be a songwriter. And so I started writing songs and I would go to concerts and I would go backstage. And back then it was really easy to do that kind of stuff. You just had to be friends with the promoter and, and they all liked budding songwriters at the time. And so I got to go backstage and meet whoever I wanted to meet and, and started out with Peter Gabriel. I, I, I started with him. He was the first person I ever played it or showed him anything. And it was a poem. And he said, well, this isn't a song. This is a poem. You need to put music to it. And I went, Oh, and he went, yeah, just go home, put your guitar, put some music to it and then take the next step. And as I walked out the door and he said, and remember, Perseverance is the name of the game. I've been doing it now 45 years. 
and um, and still doing it. And that is perseverance. I mean, I, that led me to Richie Havens. I met Richie Havens, and Richie Havens took me under his wing, and he taught me a lot about songwriting. Then he pushed me onward. Then I met The Who, and I, it was my first publishing deal with Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. Signed with them for a year. And then from that, I ended up with Uriah Heep. Worked with Ken Hensley for five years. And then came out of that and worked with a little bit with Ronnie Van Zant and those guys. And then I moved to Jacksonville. And then from Jacksonville, I met Dickie Betts and Greg Allman. And Dickie convinced me to move here in the mid-80s. I moved here in the mid-80s. And Dickie Betts had a manager. Joe Sullivan, that was with that owned a company called Sound Seventy Productions, that was the biggest promoter in town. They also managed Charlie Daniels, God rest his soul. And um, uh, I had just had a bunch of songs recorded by Uriah Heep, and Joe Sullivan introduced me to Noel Fox at Silverline Gold Line that the Oak Ridge Boys owned, and they ended up signing me. And I got a couple Oak Ridge Boys cuts, and it just went on from there. I would get the odd cut. Next cut was the Greg Allman cut. And then, you know, a Blackfoot cut. Nothing, nothing, nothing like the guys in town are getting like with Jason Aldean or, or, or something like that. But they were all, they were all really, really cool, individual, classy little cuts and put them all together. And they end up with a nice little picture. Well, so I still do it. Well, you know, and, and I'm, I'm so glad that you said that because to me, the, the definition of songwriter has changed so much over the years because I, I am one of the odd guys that I would, I would literally give anything and, and put money aside, put, put it for, just don't even think about the money aspect of it. I, I love when I look over your discography and the people that you've worked with, you you were writing songs and coming up in a time when number one, the song did really matter. It did. And, and when you were were dealing with artists like you were talking about, Blackfoot, the Who. I mean, just to be in those circles, I would I would much rather have come up through those ranks and in that time than having to deal with what we're calling the modern music business now. Because to me, it earns, it has so much more validity to it when you talk about those people. There are artists today, as a songwriter, I would rather have cuts on their records, even if they sold five copies. I would rather have that on my resume than a cut by Jason Aldean that sold five million copies. And I know for you, that's got to be a great feeling because when you talk about bands like that, and I'll tell you, this is what I, where I'm where I'm getting. You play, you have played a part in music history, and, and you have worked with bands and had cuts on and worked with these artists that have framed and, and are basically the shoulders that everybody else is just standing on, and I, that's got to make you more proud to 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 sit back and rest on your laurels than thinking I am so enraged and and entrapped and with this whole system of trying to get a cut on the next Florida Georgia line record. Yes and no. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean I mean obviously as a songwriter 
the creative part is very important. But then at the same time, we all have our own insecurities. And and I, I, I suppose because I've never had a number one country hit like everybody else I know in town has, that kind of makes me feel a little bit less than what they've done because that's just me, you know, I'm, I'm, but I don't chase it anymore. If it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But I am, you know, something like the Kevin Costner thing that just came out. I'm more proud of that than I'm proud of anything else in my I'd, life. I'll, 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 tr- I'll trade you one of my number ones for your Kevin Costner cut. <laughs> that's, yeah. I swear, I swear to God that to me, that is that to me, that is about legacy. And, and whenever you can leave, and that's what I try to tell new artists and songwriters today, the goal is not to have a hit. The goal should be to leave a legacy and, and leave something behind you that you're proud of. Because I've written hit songs that I'm not proud of. I've written hit songs that I'll refuse to play at a songwriter's round because I just am not proud of it. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and I know you know that because you are a real, you're a real craftsman. Uh, and, and there's, we don't have very many craftsmen anymore. Now, there was a time, I mean, one of my Oak Ridge Boys songs, Everybody Wins, um, that song got cut just off of me playing a guitar and Jimbo singing it. I mean, I mean, Dwayne Allen, obviously, he gave us the idea, but I wrote the music and Jimbo wrote the lyrics. And then when it was all done, uh, Dwayne had to sit in front of, of, of uh, the producer and just played it. And that's how I got it. You can't get that. That doesn't happen anymore at all. Mm. Ever, ever. Can you walk in and just say, um, let me play your song that I just wrote and get it cut. Uh, that just, those days are over. I mean, it, it's forgotten. Unless you're an independent artist, I guess. And you know, somebody like you, like, I mean, if, I'm sure if somebody you had a friend and they played you a song and you were cutting on, on, on uh, Danny or something like that. And they played it to you and, and you went, Whoa, I love that. I mean, but that's different. You're old school, but I don't think that you can send a song like that to any of these people in town. No, no, I, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even have to think. I, I know that's not the case. Well, tell me, walk me through a little bit about your relationship with Kevin Costner, how that began. You had a song uh, featured in last season of, of Yellowstone, which was a be- absolutely beautiful song. Uh, you've got uh, songs featured on Kevin Costner and, new, and Modern West's new record, uh, Tales from Yellowstone. Tell us about that relationship. How did that come about? Because that, that speaking of things that don't happen, that very rarely happens. But you guys have a, a great symbiotic, creative relationship. And, and I'd love for people to hear how that came about. Well, um, it came about four years ago when I told my wife, I, I like everything else I've ever done, everybody I've ever worked for. I've just said, I'm going to work with that person. And I found a way to do it. If it took me four years and I told her, I said, I'm going to work with Kevin Costner. When I saw that he had a band and I heard him sing, I said, I'm going to work with him. And I, and I mean, I hit every red flag in the world on, on the way there. Uh, And then finally Finally, I found Teddy Morgan and I found that he had a studio next to Blackbird and I found it and I wrote him a letter and I said, can we get together and talk about songwriting? And Teddy said, yeah. And when we got together, he said, what do you really want? 
And I said, I want to meet Kevin and work with Kevin. And he said, well, Kevin doesn't write with anybody that isn't part of the band or hasn't written with the band. And I said, well, let's start writing. <laughs> so we did. We did. And the first song I wrote with him was called Heaven So Far Away. And he sent it to Kevin and Kevin recorded it immediately. And they put it on When the Music Stops record. And flash forward now, a year past that, uh, Kevin Costner and Modern West were doing a short little tour over here. They did Florida, Georgia, and then they did a big club in Knoxville. And Teddy was going to drive that gig instead of go with the band. And I asked to come along. And he said, well, it's going to be a long night. He said, you know, we don't play until 11 o'clock. He said, we're going to do a sound check at 3.30. And everybody's going to go to sleep. And since you and I are driving back, I'm definitely going to sleep. So you're going to be on your own for about seven hours. And I said, that's fine. That's fine. And so everybody went to bed, like he said, about five o'clock. And I was standing in the parking lot talking to my wife and somebody came up and tapped me on the shoulder. And I turned around and it was a guy and he said, you Jack? And I said, yeah. And he said, Kevin wants you on the bus. And I walked on the bus and Kevin was standing there in jeans and a t-shirt with his in-house director, Mark. And they were doing going over some um, film stuff. And he just looked at me and he said, well, what do you think? And I went, about what? He said, about the song. And I went, well, I loved it. I said, you could have sang crap and I would have loved it. <laughs> and he laughed and we sat down and it was friendship from then on. I mean, they had just done a sound check and he asked me what I thought of the band. I told him I loved the band. And uh, he found some hesitation in my voice. And he said, but, and I said, um, nothing. And he said, no, what? And I went, well, two of the songs that you guys did, I think you could rekey. I said, <laughs> it sounded like it was a little bit above your range. And he looked at me and he said, that's what I've been trying to tell them for two years. And when the band walked in, he told them exactly what I said. And three weeks later, I was sitting in his living room writing with him. We've been best friends ever since. And it's because I talked the truth to him. And and um, the same thing happened with this, this record. Troy Johnson, Scott Lindsay, and I wrote a song, Won't Stop Loving You, for a country pitch. Demoed it up and everything. It was great. Um, I always send everything I write to Kevin, regardless. It, this song resonated with him. But he wrote me back and he said, um, man, I think this is a great Tales from Yellowstone song. This is John Dutton. This is about how John Dutton feels about the loss of his wife. But can you rewrite it for that? And I said, well, you got to tell me what you want. Okay, we'll get back to it. So I was in Kroger the next day and he texted me and said, can you talk? And I said, no, I'm in Kroger, but I'll be home in 20 minutes. And so I got home in 20 minutes and he said, put the phone on speaker. And I'll go into character as John Dutton, and I'll talk about the loss of my wife, and you write down everything and take it back to your co-writers. And I did, and we rewrote it with Kevin, and it's the single out now and on the video. And my wife is actually wearing a T-shirt says, won't stop loving you on it. After 45 years of writing songs, I finally have a T-shirt with a title on it <laughs> of one of my songs and Kevin Costner's name on the back. It's pretty cool. Well, and, and you know, for, for guys like you and me, 
and and a lot of people don't understand this and it because so often so many people get get sucked in by the illusions of grandeur of this business but you, the way that you just it, it, that, that is exactly right it's almost like at this point it's those things that you live for you know it it mm-hmm. is it, it it's it's not Yes, we do what we do because and we want money to come from it because that's how we provide for our family. Just like anybody else, just like anybody that gets up and goes to a job and clocks in. Believe you me, we get up and we clock in at seven o'clock. And guess what? The thing about being a songwriter is you never really clock out. You're always on the job. And so, yes, we do things and we want it to succeed monetarily so that we can continue to provide for our family. But if you really want to know the truth, it's things like that. It is totally things like that. And and it's the aspirations that we have that go way beyond. I told you, and we still haven't made this happen. We're going to make it happen. But I told you six, eight months ago that I have, I've had the pleasure. I've written songs for a ton of big films and TV shows, and I've had number ones and, and I've had that success, if you will. But I swear to God, I will not feel like I've made it unless I have, have a song in Yellowstone. <laughs> it it is it's just one of those things that the industry props up all of these goals that you're supposed to want to make, and and it revolves around money and chart position and plaques on the wall. When in reality, it's like, man, I think those of us that are purest at heart have completely set a different set of markers that we call making it if you will. And those don't have anything to do with charts and numbers and, and bank accounts. Yeah. I think that's all old school. I mean, all the songwriters I know that from the old school, they're all, when they came to town, they all knew exactly. Um, they knew what they wanted. Like I'm sure, and I'm probably speaking out of place here, but I've been a good friend of Jim McBride's for 30 years. So I think I can say this. I'm sure that when Jim moved to town and he, while he was still a post working for the post office, I'm sure that in his heart, he said, I want to get Alan Jackson to cut one of my songs. You know what I mean? I don't think I were, were, and, and back then that's what you did. You came to town with a goal in mind of somebody cutting your song and you did that. And the other thing that, that, that doesn't happen in this town anymore is, is if I wrote a song today and you wrote a song today, and we both happened to be in the same area at the same time. I couldn't wait to play you the song I wrote today, and you couldn't wait to play mm-hmm. me the song you wrote today. And and we both worked for different companies and everything, but that I can't remember the last time anybody played me a song that they wrote today because nobody wow. wants you to know share what? anything. I haven't thought about that, but you are 100%. I remember 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you, and even before, you are exactly right. We couldn't wait to share what we had created. And you are, I don't remember the last, you, I think you were the last person to send me a song that you wrote. Without pitching it. Without, and and you, and you texted me three times to make sure it was okay that you did it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, send me the song. Quit asking, send me the song. I can't wait to hear it. But, but because the parameters of the business have changed and it's so not like the way that it used to be that you're right. It's like now we're scared to do that. Now we feel mm-hmm. like, you know, not between you and me and, and other, you know, friends that we have closely, but, but even that I don't have, 
friends that go, hey, man, wrote this yesterday. I wrote this this morning. Man, you got to hear it. I'm just so in love with this. And, and I, do you think it's because we've entered this phase of the music business where it's it's we feel it's unhealthy or prohibitive for us to share our work with one another or to be excited for for each other? Oh, no, I think it's because there's no more. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's because everybody's out for themselves now, and I don't think there's no more family like it used to be. It was all mm. family back then. I mean, back in the Harlan Howard days, back in the days of those guys, it was all family. I mean, it was all one big family that would go get after work, would end up at Tavern on the Row or Third Coast or somewhere else and drink until seven or eight and then go sit in the car with each other and play each other's songs. Or somebody would bring a guitar out on the lawn and start, this is something I played and this is something I played with no fear, with no fear of stealing an idea. But I think people do fear that now. I think there's because there's no family, if you don't have any family, then you don't have any trust. The trust goes away. So you don't trust, so you don't play anybody your ideas because, um, I don't know, I saw something posted on Facebook today. I'm not going to mention any names. A couple of days ago, I'm not going to mention any names, but I saw a prominent songwriter in town post a song that he just had cut. Somebody just cut and he played a demo of it and it was pretty close, you know? Right. And so you got to watch out for things like that now where you didn't back then. You didn't have to watch out for that. No, it it is. It is a completely it's I I just I the reason that that it's like I'm I'm and I know you're you're doing things differently. I know I'm doing things differently. And I think it's because we're trying to find not only where we fit today, but also trying to go back and create some of where of that family trying to create that atmosphere again with each other. Cause I, th- yeah. I think, I think that's more important than anything. And, and it just, well, it just that because of music row too, you got to realize that haven't a lot of that was because of music uh, way music row was. I mean, that was two streets with nothing but publishing houses up and down the street. So you could walk out the door of your publishing company and be next door at, a, at your buddy's publishing company in two minutes. And, and there was all that. Everybody was walking on the street. Everybody was talking. Everybody was going to the same shop for lunch. Everybody was going to the same shop for breakfast. But now because of modernization, music row isn't that way anymore. So that takes away from that family too. It does. Let me ask you. But you still gonna... hold on to what you got. You got to hold on to the friends you have like this. You know what I mean? Um, and you got to still got to still got to keep the friends you have and, and trust in them. And I think if people do that, it, it'll be good. Well, and uh, you know, it's so funny. I remember the the very first time we met uh, was on a co-write. And I remember thinking to myself that usually for those of you that don't know, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, especially in a co-writing you know, situation, there are times, and I know in my career, and I know it's happened to you too, Jack, but there are times whenever it's the first 45 minutes to an hour, hour and a half, two hours, trying to get comfortable with somebody. And, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. And I remember when you came, when you got to the right, it was just, it, it was that old school family feel. There was no, we got to fill each other out to see where we're, it was just instant. And, and we yeah. got, we got a great song. 
because I respected you. There was no pre-qualification coming into the room. It was just two guys getting together to write a song with the, with the song being the goal. The goal was not exactly. for me to prove that I'm better than you or you to prove that you're better than me or that it, it was, we want to write a great song. Both of our goal, we share one thing in common and that is we want to get a great song out of this. Egos be damned. Everything business be damned because if the song's not right, the business will never be there. And right. we, we were able to come together in that. And it's like, that's why I know I, and I don't know if you've done this, but over the last three or four years, I bet I had a stable of maybe 30, 20, somewhere between 20 and 30 writers that I wrote with regularly. And I've whittled that down to maybe five. Me and, too. <laughs> and because I if don't, that. if that, no, that's exactly right. I, I have, you know what? I can say it on, I know for sure four that I don't need to write with anybody else. I, I, I just, there's, there's, I don't need to write with, oh, so-and-so over here to write a great song. I would rather sit down and spend my time, which I feel is valuable. And I know your time is valuable. I would rather spend that time productively sitting across from somebody that I know that shares the same goal that I have. But here's the thing. And this is the thing. Back when we were starting out, those guys that we wanted to write with did the same thing that we're doing now. And we would go, why won't they write with us? And they would go, I got my little five people I write with, and that's it. And we didn't understand why. Yes. And we had no idea why. We didn't know why they only wrote, why they wouldn't break out and try somebody new. Because we were good. Why wouldn't they try somebody like us? But you couldn't get me to write with somebody brand new just off the cuff on a phone call now. If you Unless unless it came from somebody I really, 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 really trusted. Right. Because of that. Well, no. And, it's and, a waste know, it, that's and you said I was going to say it. You just said it because it's a waste of time that that is yeah. when you deal in. That's what a lot of people and I, I'm trying to put this into terms. Most people understand songs are our currency. That is how we deal. That is how we pay for things. That is how we get by in life. Songs are our currency. They are our job. And a lot of new artists, new songwriters don't understand that if I've got four hours, five hours, six hours or a day to write, why am I going to write with somebody that I don't know that I'm going to have to develop that rapport with? Because it is our job. My job is to go in and get the best product possible. Why would I do that with somebody new whenever I can call Jack and go, Jack, man, I got a hell of an idea. And we can bring, we can knock this thing out of the park and bring it home. And I know that we can, I don't have to guess. I don't, I don't have to go, well, it's going to take an hour and a half to get to know this person, get comfortable with them, find out what, the, you know. So, I mean, it is a business. And I know that new songwriters get frustrated when they send emails and they 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 call, you know, can you, and it's like, I'm not trying to tell you that I don't feel like you're worth it. I'm trying to tell you that I do this for a living and my time is better spent. No offense. You know, even though they do get offended every single time. Yeah, but, I got letters like that way up my career but we do too i mean we we've been there my heart well and i get i like you said i understand it a lot more today than i understood it 15 years ago i I did totally different totally different thing you know different different point of view and, and i get it and i understand why those guys did that 
I want to ask yeah. you before before we talk about the new record because I want to talk about the new record. I, I want to ask you a question: If for whatever reason, if somebody said today, Jack, it's over, you can't do this anymore. What's the one thing that you would look back on your career and go, I am most proud of this, and why? Probably the time I spent with your I hate. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was a time in my life when I was just coming, just coming into my myself. And I'm proud of the fact that somebody like Ken Hensley um and Uriah Heap took me under their wing and um allowed me to co-write with them. They were major rock stars for God's sakes. I mean I I got to do demos with with Alvin Lee and and Mick Ralphs and George Harrison and I mean all my songs and and I learned and I all I had to do was keep my mouth shut and, and listen and that helped form me and I think I'm more more I wish those days would have lasted longer but I'm that's where my whole being started I think was in that those two or three years in in London when I went over there and worked with those guys. That's awesome. That's I wondered if that's what you would say. That that is awesome because there is something about you know constantly. We all look to the past and it's like there's something about certain periods of our life that just they define the rest of our lives. And it's like it's that that's interesting to hear. I ask everybody that question because I find the answer so interesting. So you've written all these songs. You've had all this experience. You've always been the guy behind the lyrics and the guy behind the melody. All of a sudden this year, Jack Williams decides he's going to jump in the artist pool and you put out a brand new project at the beginning of May called already dead. Tell me what made you decide to do that and take that leap from, from songwriter to now artist slash singer songwriter. And then tell me a little bit about the project. That was a combination of a couple of different things. That was a combination of um, Scott Robinson who owns um, dual um, dual tone records with the lumineers um he had been coming to he'd come two or three times to see me play at libras at uh at puckets and um asked me why i didn't sing my own songs i've always been afraid of my own voice because i work with such great singers every day that though i keep my like you know my bar on singers is like my bar on guitar players i mean if i can't get near tom bukovac then i'm no good you know, I mean, if I can't sing like Troy Johnson, then I can't sing, you know. So I just was never proud of my voice. But back in the day when I worked with Richie Havens, he did the same thing. He said, you need to sing your own songs. And finally, finally, when I got with with Jill's at Anthem, between Jill's and Scott, everybody was like, okay. This is the sound that TV and film are looking for. Your your voice. This is what the listen to TV. Listen to Sons of Anarchy. Listen to Justified. Listen to the songs that are getting cut for those TV shows. It's all dark, raspy voices, and you know, and Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits, this style of voice. That's the kind of voice I have. And so I got together with Adam Box from the Brothers Osborne, and and he said, "I'll I'll produce it if you write it." 
and we ride it together. And I got with him and and uh, Mark Marchetti, who is Peggy Lynn, Loretta Lynn's son-in-law. And between the three of us, we wrote those songs and and I did it. And then when the people at Anthem Film and TV heard it, and and the film and TV people heard it, they said, "This is exactly what we were looking for." And that gave me confidence to continue doing it. I don't know if I'm, you know, you're not going to see me on tour or anything like that, but I have a, don't have a problem going out and playing the stuff. And and I, I, I love to play live, but I have a lot more confidence now because of that. And and I got to write what I wanted to write. I got to write about my childhood and I got to write about bad things that country music won't let you write about, you know? Right. Which is what TV wants to hear that that's exactly that is exactly right it, it it is and i love i love so much more doing stuff for tv and film than i ever have writing for artists or or other it just to me it allows me to to be ultimately creative which is why we all got into this in the first place because we had something we wanted to express something we wanted to say and yeah. tv film really i found and i don't know about you but it it that's feels like more like my home that's where i can be me yeah, exactly. You can write what you want to write. I mean, if you if if you um, if you were abandoned as a child, you can write that song, and 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 they'll put it on behind the scene yeah. that works. You know, so you know, I mean, or 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 if somebody cheated on you and broke your heart, and you can go ahead and call her a bitch. <laughs> you know, because that works. Well, you can't on radio. You know, so. No, that's, it's a hundred percent true. You guys, you need to go. I wait something with you because here's the thing. The thing about film and TV is the one, the only good thing about COVID, if there's anything good about COVID is that right now there's no shooting being done and mm. music is the last thing to go in. We know that. So as for like a show like Yellowstone, I haven't even begun shooting Yellowstone and don't know when. Probably be the end of August, which means it'll be early next year before they even start looking for songs. So you got all that time to find out what's going on and what the storyline is and then write a few songs that might back up those storylines. So there's plenty of time for all of that kind of stuff. And, and it's really just about that, you know? Yeah, totally. For those of you watching and or listening, uh, make sure you go check out uh, Jack's project, Already Dead. Uh, you can find it everywhere you buy or stream your music. Search for H. Jack Williams. It's called Already Dead, and you're going to love it. Five songs, Devil's Ro- uh, Devil Road, Ain't No More, Already Dead, Change, Oh God. They're all great. You're gonna, it's, I guarantee that when you first start listening, you're not going to expect what you're going to get, but what you get, you are going to absolutely 110% love. So go check it out. Already dead. Every it's available now everywhere you buy and stream your music. Well, Jack, thank you for doing this, man. Thank you for taking the time. And you and I actually have a couple of songs we've written together that are going to be coming out uh, in a few short months uh, on a new artist (laughs) that that we're excited about. And, uh, uh, maybe when that happens, I'll have you back on, maybe this whole COVID thing will be done and I can have you here in the studio. I would love that. And, but more than anything, I would love it when we get together and write something for film and TV, because I just know that we're going to write something cool. (laughs) 
Thanks for joining us for the Steve Freeman Podcast. Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow Steve on social media at, at the Steve Freeman.